Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. That is Revelation chapter 20 verses 1 through 3. And Bridge Radio is back at you from the great state of Texas. Texas. And yes, today's going to be an eschatological discussion. discussion on all millennialism with Dr. Kim Riddlebogger. This is part two of a eschatological series. I think right? it's part one, though. I no, don't know. We, I don't know if I count Gary Demar as that was supposed to. Be, yeah, we didn't. We well, do. Doug. I, uh, I wanted to get Doug, Doug's a good representative. I'm not knocking you, Doug, if you're listening or any people who who know him. I'm not knocking him, but I, I want to get Dr. Ken Gentry because he's like a scholar on on that stuff. Oh, okay. So so then this so I would just be, said Doug Wilson's not a scholar. So so then we have uh, part one A and uh, part one A B with Demar and then Dougie. I guess so. <laughs> I guess yeah, it's, yeah, whatever, whatever. Anyway, I, I'm your host Julio Mod Rodriguez. Across from me is the AW Varilla. And uh, we have the Presidente. What's, what's going on, Hartog. people? I, I got a joke for you guys. Okay, what? Right. There was a... Um, what, what, what did a bike say when it fell over? I don't know. You got me. It was too tired. <laughs> <laughs> we should use that in our... Yeah! We should use that in our dental office. I think, I think my wife would like that. That one. was that was pathetic. That was like a total dad joke. Anyway, I'm not even commenting. On yeah. yeah, Steve just looked at me. You're fired. You're done. Get out of the studio. Get out of the studio. Um, so yeah, guys, we got a good program for you today. But before we do that, um, we are Bridge Radio. Uh, please subscribe to us. We're on iTunes, Windows, Google Play, all the major podcast platforms, and you can also download our Bridge app available across all i think it's ios windows and android just mm. type in bridge ministries you'll see our name logo and slogan coffee and good news and download it we got a lot of good stuff on there right yes uh we got expository sermons and uh, bridge radios on there so go check that out if you're uh, local we got all our events on there we got mm-hmm. bible studies mm-hmm. so check it out and sign up for one of our bible studies yeah, yeah. We're, we're thinking about going through ecclesiestes this summer yeah, right that, me and abe yeah. i love ecclesiastes we gotta <laughs> do a podcast actually now that we're doing this intro guys i'm, I'm being i'm being completely honest for our listeners i've been thinking about doing a midweek podcast where mm-hmm. it's just maybe like 20 minutes of discussion between us maybe steve abe yeah. and i doing maybe just a book of the bible just slowly going through it and talking about it midweek 20 20 minutes 30 minutes nothing nothing that long just let us know what you think yeah if you're interested just let us know yeah. and uh see what we yeah because it's it, all vanity bro yeah it's all vanity <laughs> <laughs> any new ideas man hey we're the kind of ministry that throws as much uh, just as many darts at the dartboard and whatever sticks we're like hey it's, we're just sticking with it all right if so, you want to hear more from us let us know otherwise we'll just crawl yeah. back into our corner yeah we'll yeah. let that we'll, we'll let our guests talk <laughs> yeah ex- exactly so we're looking forward to getting to talk yeah. in this position absolutely so, so the last couple of weeks we've we've also um uh sent out some some some, some boxes yes. for, for for our supporters yeah and uh we got to meet oh i got to email back and forth with brad coleman thank you brad coleman for for Brad. listening in, he's he's an Aussie, he's yes. Australian. I don't so. even know if I'm correctly pronouncing yeah. that right, but he sent us a really nice picture of a bridge mug and the Australian flag. So thank you for all of our supporters out there. And then we got to meet Albert. Yes, Albert from Yuma. You want to talk Arizona? Talk, talk a little bit about him. Well, I mean, he was he was one of our listeners who mm-hmm. listened to our podcast. We didn't know who he was, and he had reached out to Julio, and uh, 
asked some questions about his church and reform theology and uh, Julio was able to talk to him and then myself and uh, it's just been a blessing to, to meet him and mm-hmm. uh, we have uh, sent him out some books. And yeah, we surprised him. I felt so bad though because he was me- he, he, he really wanted Joel Beakey's systematic theology. Yeah. And uh, and he was messaging me. I said, no, 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 we could get you at a really good price. <laughs> yeah. Really good price. And he messaged me twice, and I had him on red. Not yeah. R-E-D, the color red. Like yeah. red where you open up a messenger, and you're yeah. like, oh, the guy read my message, but yeah. he never responded back. Yeah. And I felt so bad, but I was like, I know the day he it arrives at his house, yeah. he's going to be so happy. But we sent him Joel Beakey's Volume 1, Systematic Theology, Justin Peters' Clouds Without Water, yeah. and some bridge monks. So he was really happy about that. Yeah, he's on his way. We're, we're excited awesome. about that. So again, for our listeners, uh, you know, Thank you very much. And if you need some books, uh, I know that we had some giveaways uh, last week mm-hmm. um, when we had um, R.C. Sproul oh, Jr. Junior. on, and uh, we were giving away five books. So, uh, again, if you haven't done that, and go right, listen. Go listen. And, go listen. And I, won't, we, I won't tell you here how to win those. Yeah. 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 <laughs> we won't tell you how to win them. But if we haven't passed them out and you listen to that podcast, uh, please uh, get a hold of Julio for sure. All righty. Well, as a segue... Um, Albert actually messaged me the last message about eschatology. He's like, I'm learning about eschatology. Mm-hmm. So here you go, Albert. And I told him about all millennial, all millennialism and post-millennialism. Yeah. So you and might want to go. Yeah. You, go ahead. I only tell him the truth. That's the thing. Yes. Yeah, you or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> well, don't worry for our listeners. We, we, we want to teach all aspects of eschatology, right? Yeah. And, and, I, and, be, and, yeah. and then from there and... You know, so we will we'll have pre-mail. I'll, yeah, we, we are going to have a pre-mail. We'll yeah. have <laughs> these guys. <laughs> pre-mail eventually, yes. I get a lot of flack here, guys, but I, I love these we, brothers. We love, yeah, but uh, again, this is a teaching ministry, guys, and we want to present all, all, all yeah. positions. All of these positions yeah. are within Orthodox, Orthodox, Orthodox Christianity, yes. and, you know, yeah. none of them are, are critical. So yes. we're, all, we're all brothers here. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, no heresy here. For sure. All right, Abe, Steve, you ready to talk some eschatology? Let's oh, do it. Oh, yeah. All right. So here is our guest. Dr. Kim Riddlebarger is senior pastor of Christ Reformed Church in Anaheim, California, and for over 25 years was the co-host to the popular White Horse Inn. That's a radio internet talk show. Everyone has to listen to that program. It's mm. great. Steve listens Definitely, to it a lot. Definitely, yeah. yeah. With uh, besides renewing your mind, that is my favorite. Yeah, nice. It's, it's excellent. Oh, but besides good. bridge radio, right? You wow. you want to add those two? That's that's right? a soup. That's a presupposition. We <laughs> yeah, hold. Yeah, yeah. He is a regular contributor to publications such as Modern Reformation and Table Talk, and has written chapters for numerous books. And today we will be talking with him about one of his most recognized books, A Case for All Millennialism: Understanding the End Times. And thank you, Doctor uh, Riddlebar for joining Bridge Radio for the first time. Very good to be with you. Looking forward to it. So here at the ministry, uh, we are a reformed nonprofit Christian bookstore and coffee shop. And as probably you are very well aware, the eschatological debates uh, amongst Christians gets pretty uh, pretty wild here. And I think we have all three positions, uh, or at least four positions, represented here. And so with that said, I wanted to kind of get your thoughts on kind of from the Christian perspective coming in talking about eschatology, how should we handle this as Christians? Well, eschatology, some have said, is last things for a reason. It's the doctrine we push off to the back to the end because it's divisive and people don't like to talk about it because, as you guys mentioned, there are three different views in your booth, um, maybe four between us. Um, It is a subject that 
not everyone sees eye to eye on. Uh, it is a subject that has it, it lends itself to um, all kinds of undue speculation and just plain nuttiness. Uh, there's always a tendency to want to tie biblical themes to current events. Um, so eschatology can be a really divisive thing. That's very sad because um, if anyone reads the Bible carefully, you should get the point that as soon as the human race falls into sin in Genesis chapter 3, mm -hmm. God's already there promising that redemption is going to come. Right. And that tells us that the entirety of the Bible going forward from the fall and the first promise of, of redemption is eschatological. So it's heading toward a goal. So as a Christian, you know, I'm not a Hegelian. I'm not a, a, a German philosopher. Um, mm -hmm. I don't think history works in cycles, you know, with a thesis and antithesis and a new synthesis. I think history is linear. It's moving toward the goal God has directed. And so that, that tells me that everything in the Bible post-fall is in some sense going to be eschatology. Mm -hmm. So when you look at it redemptive historically, it is the, the very fiber of, of biblical redemption. Now, when you're looking at things from a, the perspective of systematic theology, and you're looking at things topically, of course you have to put eschatology at the end, because that is the last matter to be addressed. So mm -hmm. um, it, it's, a, it's a major major topic, and uh, what I've tried to do in the case for all millennialism is, is draw people back to, look, you have to come at this first redemptive historically before you can start drawing conclusions, and a lot of that is going to depend first and foremost on your operating assumptions. And so I thought it was very important to, to concentrate on, look, here's my premise, here are my working assumptions, because too often when there's a disagreement about eschatology, it's just people trading their favorite verses for somebody else's verses, and it makes it sound as though the Bible's not clear on it. Okay. Uh, which your operating assumptions are understood, the Bible's very clear about it. Okay. All righty. So for our new listeners, or maybe some people who aren't uh, familiar with this big term called eschatology, could you define it for us before we kind of get into your presuppositions and, uh, and your position of all, all millennialism? Sure. Eschatology is from the Greek word eschatos, or last, and the study of. So eschatology is the study of last things. It's a much bigger topic than just the second coming of Christ because it includes things like the intermediate state. Well, what's that mean? Well, suppose, you know, Grandma died two weeks ago, and the question is raised by her family and at her funeral, well, where's Grandma now? Uh, that's part of eschatology. Mm -hmm. um, what is the, the eternal state going to be like? What is, what is my existence going to be like in heaven? What is heaven? Uh, all those questions come under the heading of eschatology, and they're all really important. They're all very practical because, uh, as Paul repeatedly says, our hope as Christians— is grounded in the eschatological hope, the, the end times hope, that Jesus is going to come back and he's going to raise the dead and judge the world and make all things new. So that, that's our expectation. Uh, and, and in chapter one of your book, it's actually the first page, uh, you wrote, most often eschatology is understood as referring to events that are still future in relation to both the individual Christian and the course of history. Why, why do you think uh, most people view eschatology just to be all in the future? Well, I think people who are around evangelical media, uh, especially from our dispensational friends, are being told that the Bible speaks to current events, and you can find any event on the news, whether it be from the election of an unpopular person on the other party to the appointment of an unpopular, uh, unpreferred Supreme Court justice to some... A uh, person in the Middle East acting up and creating problems for their neighbors, you know, anything like that can be tied 
to Bible verses, and so um, people think naturally, well, eschatology is just about the immediate future, and the, we're obviously, because of all these signs, we're living in the last days, so th there's a real focus on trying to connect Bible passages to current events, and that gives eschatology a real sense of urgency and a real sense that, you know, this is it, we're in the last days, Christ is going to come back tomorrow, and, and so we all better be ready. That, that I think, is driving that whole um, popular sentiment that eschatology is, is strictly future things. Yeah, and so what, what is what would you consider a more biblical understanding of eschatology, especially when it comes just to the individual Christian? You kind of talked about that, but especially in the course of history. Yeah, well, as I made a comment earlier, you know, from Genesis 3.15 on, the entirety of redemptive history is eschatological, promise and fulfillment. God promises it's fulfilled, uh, and almost all of the promises God has made uh, were fulfilled in Christ, and those that weren't, were partially fulfilled in Christ and will be finally filled in Christ at His second coming. So, um, the entirety of the, the warp and woof of biblical history is eschatological. So that affects me in that, you know, what happens to me when I die? Uh, what is my future? Um, you know, what, what will happen when, you know, I take my last breath? Um, do I not right. exist? Am I annihilated? Or am I, does my soul sleep until the resurrection as Luther taught? Um, or am I immediately in the presence of God? And if I am, what's that like? And sure. what's going to happen when Christ comes back? And there's a, so you can't talk about this subject without at least privately thinking to yourself, what's going to happen to me when I die? That's eschatology. Hmm. That's good. That's good. Yeah. Ken, can you give us a, uh, an understanding of of your eschatolo eschatological position. Big Be word, big word. Yeah, <laughs> easy, easy for me. Yeah, to Jesus say. is coming back. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Well, being a millennial, can you uh, tell us what that is and kind right. of your presuppositions that go into taking that position? Another big word. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. What are your operating assumptions? Well, your operating assumptions are that um, God has a purpose. To bring all history into subjection to Christ. Hmm. So he's moving all things forward in the Old Testament. Things are promised, they're fulfilled by Christ in his Messianic mission. Mm -hmm. And so there are some promises that are partially fulfilled, but open ended. Well, I mean, what I mean by that is, for example, the already not yet, that sure. I have already been seated and raised with Christ, according to Paul, Ephesians, and Colossians, even though I'm still here. You know, stuck in my study where I'm using a, a 10 year old set of headphones I'm not sure really works and the big <laughs> stick them so you know there's an already not yet kind of kind of dynamic that goes on for every Christian yeah so my, my operating assumption is that God has a purpose for history and that purpose is to sum up all things in Christ and that the kingdom of God advances relentlessly but I don't tie the advance of the kingdom of God to secular progress hmm. so that's why I'm not post-millennial I don't think that the, there's going to be a golden age on the earth, either before or after Christ comes back. I'm not uh, a millenarian at all. I don't think that the Bible teaches that the progress of the kingdom is intended to, to Christianize society. I think there will be uh, an incidental salt and light and Christianizing effect, but I don't think that's the purpose of the gospel. Right. So okay. while I, I see the church uh, uh, enduring as the church militant in this age, I also think we see flashes and hints, times of revival, times of great missionary activity and so on, where you do get a sense that the kingdom of God is great and glorious, but I don't think the intent of that kingdom is to, to secularize culture. Hmm. 
neither do I think that Christ is going to come back and set up some sort of a halfway renewed earth where he sits on the throne in Jerusalem and rules and reigns over the earth. I don't think the Bible teaches that. The only passages that you can appeal to are uh, a couple in the latter chapters of Zechariah and Isaiah and a couple, uh, uh, I think, a misreading of Revelation chapter 20. So there's just not a lot in the scriptures that, that, that speak of things apart from Christ's visible bodily return at the end of the age. And at that return, he raises all dead, believing and unbelieving, there's a universal judgment, the general uh, judgment of all men and women, um, and then a creation in that complex of events of a new heaven and a new earth. So uh, I think the Bible is really clear that the, the Christian hope, the central hope of the New Testament is that Christ is going to come back. And when he does, that's it. He's going to judge, uh, raise, the, raise the dead, judge all men, and create a new heaven and a new earth. Mm-hmm. So it's a very simple, direct kind of eschatology. and. I think if you're new to this or confused by it, uh, if you just get a, a, a standard Bible chart, you know, for end times views, you'll see that amillennialism is really compact. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it everything's focused around the second coming of Christ, whereas uh, the other versions, whether it be historic premillennialism or dispensational premillennialism, spread things out over longer periods of time. Christ comes back and then then there's another pattern, another course of history after he returns. Right. Um, and I just don't see that taught anywhere in Scripture. I think that the focal point is when Christ comes back, that is the consummation of all things. That's what the creeds say. That's what the Reformed Confessions have taught. I think that's what Scripture teaches. Yeah. It's really simple. Jesus is coming back. Right. And I, I heard in one of your other lectures you talked about uh, your her- hermeneutic being based on your covenant theology. And uh, so can you talk a little bit about that and how those two are tied together, how, how, your, how your presuppositions are based on that covenant theology? Yeah, I think Mike Horton, my uh, colleague and buddy, will say is you know in his his book on covenant theology. When you walk inside a building, some structures you can see the ribs, the the architectural guts that hold the the external structure up. When you mm-hmm. read the Bible, it becomes really clear that the internal structure is covenantal. Mm-hmm. That God yeah. relates to us through covenants. Mm-hmm. There's a covenant at the beginning of history with the covenant of works or covenant of creation that God makes with Adam. Look, Adam, I'm putting you in Eden, the ideal place. I'm giving you natural ability to fulfill the requirements I have, which is not to eat of that tree, because the day in which you eat of it, you'll die. Adam, of course, does that, plunges the entire human race into sin and death. And then immediately upon um, the fall, God is there promising uh, redemption and that promise of redemption takes the form of covenants mm. and there are multiple covenants but they're all organically connected so it is possible to speak of a covenant of grace but to see that covenant unfold in, in stages sure. so as you read through the, the the structure of the bible its eschatology is in one way covenantal because those covenants make promises and those promises have to be fulfilled and those promises are fulfilled in the personal work of Christ. So, whereas dispensationalists will come to the Bible and they will say there are seven separate economies where God deals with his people this way, this period, this way, the next period, that way, the next period. I think they're right to notice that. What they get wrong is they have these detached from each other, so there's no organic connection between them. Sure. So, when you come to the New Testament, for dispensationalists, it's do-over. There's no connection between what has gone before other than it all failed and now here's god's way to to finish it 
whereas on the, the Reformation, you know, covenantal, uh, um, uh, confessional reform, or even Lutheran view, the idea is that Christ fulfills the Old Testament. Right. And so there's an organic unity between the Old and New Testament. So there's one gospel from Genesis to Revelation. There's a covenant works. So the, the curse is in effect from the time of the fall until the time of the, of the second coming. And so uh, God cannot lower his standards or erase his uh, holiness to the point that he cannot allow sinners into heaven apart from removing the guilt of their sin from them and reckoning them righteous. Mm-hmm. And so for the ministry of Christ, who comes to do that very thing, he comes under the covenant of works to fulfill it so that for us, we can be given his covenant keeping and his death as a free gift. So for us, it's a covenant of grace, but for Christ, it was a covenant of works. Sure. That's when you look at you look at the person work of Christ, you're looking at eschatology because he's coming again, and you're looking at covenants because his work centers around being the mediator of that gracious covenant. So I think the two are intimately connected. And I think if you operate on kind of a premillennial hermeneutic, I don't think that's heretical or anything like that, but I think you end up having a harder time making sense of the unity of Scripture and how the pieces fit together. Right. So Christ in the New Testament simply fulfills the Old Testament. Yeah, what was promised, Christ fulfills. So you've got the stress throughout the New Testament, in the epistles, you have the explanation. In the Gospels, you have Jesus saying things like, I have come. Sure. Well, come to, come to do what? I'm right. coming to fulfill. Sure. You have the, the Gospel writers always saying, as the prophet said, so Jesus fulfills or Jesus explains. Just, it's very clear from the Lord's Messianic mission that he's there to fulfill what was promised in the Old Testament. Sure. And then he, in turn, makes a series of additional promises they're all related to what's gone before, but it'll bring them to final consummation. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I think that if you read the Bible, the, that kind of a Christ-centered, he's at the center of the story kind of hermeneutic, right. that that's going to be covenantal, and that's going to be something like an all-millennial eschatology. Right. Okay. All right. Well, an objection that all-millennialists get, and I would think uh, as well as post-millennialists would get, is that those two eschat- eschatological views are um, Roman Catholic. Um, <laughs> how, how is that, number one, not the case, and how has it been historic in, in Orthodox positions? Yeah, I get that surprisingly from people who should know better. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I'm just dumbfounded that, that you know, a, a recent writer uh, critiqued um, a case from Williamson and said, well, here's the eschatology of Roman Catholicism. Well, for Pete's sake, I think the papacy's a seat of Antichrist, so it's not like I'm really friendly to, to Romanism. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that Pope um, is tearing it up. <laughs> yeah. It, it's it's a, a strong—the entire Roman system is centered around nature and grace, with grace perfecting nature. And so the Roman seri- the Roman focus in eschatology is on the Church as the body of Christ are being completed by the sacramental office of the priesthood, by the expansion of the Roman Church— where it's holy offices and so on. So the only similarity is we believe that Christ will come at the end of history to usher in a new heaven and a new earth. Rome sees that in the completion of the church. We see it as a completion of, of Christ's body, uh, which is not the institutional church that Rome sees. So uh, I always kind of chuckle about that when I hear that. Um, 
I remind people, you know, I'm a minister in the United Reformed Churches. I hold the three forms of unity, and so the author of our profession of faith, Guy Debray, um, Guido Debray, was put to death by the Roman authorities in mm-hmm. what's now Belgium, in the, in the lower part of the Netherlands, because he was serving communion to uh, Reformed exiles. So, mm-hmm. you know, Rome was so thrilled with our guys that they put him to death. So, um, that that kind of an objection to me is raised by somebody who is very unfamiliar with church history. Right. Right. Yeah. 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 And an, this is another thing that I have gotten. I remember because I I I I'm flip flopping, especially now after reading your book uh, or reading through your book, all millennialism or post millennialism. You've you've got me challenged here. But whenever I I view uh, my eschatology, what I have gotten surprisingly is well, that's anti-Semitic. How how is that not anti-Semitic? It, it kind of goes along with what we're talking about right now, of just people not really having an understanding of our position and just maybe church history as well. Right. It's an objection that comes up, obviously, because the Holocaust. I mean, the Holocaust is um, the most significant event in redemptive history. I, I'm not a guy who thinks, that, you know, I think the canon is closed to Scripture, but I think we're living still in the age of redemption that, that goes forth after the canon is closed. And so you've got this this terrible event in the Holocaust that uh, cries out for an explanation. And dispensationalists will will argue that because the promise God made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, that he'll bless all those who bless Abraham and curse all those who curse the seed of Abraham, which they believe is national Israel, which ignores everything that Paul and Jesus say about true Israel in the New Testament, hmm. that um, nations who turn on the Jews will be cursed. So they look at Hitler, and they look at the uh, rise of the German Enlightenment, and Goethe and Schiller, and all those, you know, that the, you do have this nasty strain of anti-Semitism throughout uh, much of Germany, you have it throughout much of Eastern Europe, and it's because of the Jewish diaspora after the time of the, the, the collapse of Jerusalem in AD 70. Um, you have the, the bulk of Christian nations in Europe isolating Jews to ghettos and engaging in pogroms. I mean, there's, anti-Semitism is just a huge historical problem. It's it's as big an apologetics problem as is the Crusades. I mean, this is where the Church is misbehaving. But it's not because of amillennialism. It's yeah. dispensation, dispensation will accuse Reformed Christians like me of holding to replacement theology. That because I believe the Church replaces Israel, therefore I'm going to be anti-Semitic by nature. Hmm. Um, I, I, first of all, that's just not true. Right. Um, anecdotally, you know, one of the things that Dutch Reformed churches were known for, at least here in Southern California, is you know when I was still in the Christian Reformed Church, um, and I did pulpit supply a lot of us, a lot of the different local churches, and every one of these churches had families or or multiple families whose ancestors immigrated to the United States after World War II. And every one of them can tell you a story about hiding Jews along with allied soldiers and airmen. I mean, it was we have an illustrious record of protecting Jews because we believed, as Paul said, my heart breaks for them. I wish they were, I'd give my life if they were to be saved. So there's nothing theologically uh, producing anti-Semitism. There is a secular Christianity that produces anti-Semitism. And that I think we as Christians need to identify and call it a sin. Um, racism in any form is sinful, especially racism directed against 
the people of God who were cut off by covenant curse in, in the great. I mean, look at Jesus' description of the of Jerusalem. You know, nothing worse could ever happen in redemptive history than God's covenant people being cut off under the covenant curse. Mm-hmm. And he weeps, and that should be our attitude. So mm-hmm. um, it, it's an argument that has a lot of emotional bite to it because of a flawed view that if you bless Israel, then the modern nation state, not not historic Israel, the modern nation state of Israel, if you bless them, God will bless you. If you curse them, God will curse you. Mm. And these all millennial people don't believe God has a special place for Israel in the future, that redemptive Israel is going to go back to Israel again. Because you don't believe that, you must be anti, anti-Semitic. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's just, I, I think it's a, a, it's a historically false and it, it's a violation of the commandment to love your neighbor. Yeah, I was thinking that. All right, now let's bunk, bunker down on a topic. Uh, Dr. Kim, uh, a term used uh, is eschatolo- eschatological discussion is millennium. Uh, where yeah. do we get this period of time, and, wh- and what is characterized by it? Okay. Um, anybody who's a millenarian, who believes in a millennium, which is a thousand years, um, is characterized as somebody who takes Revelation 20, which is the only place where the thousand years are mentioned specifically. But that points to a period of time either before Christ comes back, if you're post-millennial, or after Christ comes back, if you're pre-millennial. There's to be some sort of a golden age on the earth. There'll be the, the image are described in Revelation chapter 20, supposedly, is one of universal peace and prosperity. This will be when your kids will play with cobras and not be stung, when you can have a pet lion or a pet tiger, as I used to grow up as a dispensationist, you know, telling my mom, gee, I can't wait for the millennium so I can have a pet tiger. Um, <laughs> or a pet bear? <laughs> yeah. Abe has talked about that a lot, having a pet <laughs> bear. Yeah, I want a bear. Yeah. Now, there's a bigger theological question. That's whether cats will be in the millennium or not. <laughs> okay. I'm not really sure about that. But that's, that, that's another controversy. <laughs> yeah. Only dogs but go to heaven. But the millennium is, is this thousand years, whether it's a literal thousand years or not. Um, there's some debate among the millenarians, but it's a universal peace of, period of peace and prosperity under Christ's rule. So there are many secularized versions of this, and there's an interesting connection in my mind, say, between a, a Marxist utopia and the secular progress idea with the post-millennialism and early Puritanism. I, not that they're, they're the same, they're completely different. But there has been this strain of thought in, in Western civilization that there's going to be a golden age. And so when dispensationalism pops up on the scene, it puts the golden age after Christ returns on the earth, and it frames it in terms of a return to the types and shadows of the Old Testament. Um, one of the things that I'll never forget, we were taping White Sins years ago, and we were privileged to have Tim LaHaye in the studio. He'd been at the uh, recording studio taping his own program or some of their special and he agreed to stay and talk with us so it was kind of an honor to have a guy that famous and that well-known you know sitting on your taping session so we got to talking and he of course uses the anti-semitic argument all the rest of it and he said now you men believe in in holy communion yes <laughs> well <laughs> how how about when christ comes back that instead of communion, we go back to animal sacrifice because that was the original plan of which communion was kind of a replacement. And so, do you men believe that in the Millennial Kingdom, we're going to have animal sacrifice? my phone going, sorry. Somebody trying to sell me Medicare because I'm going to turn 65 here pretty soon. So let them 
I can tell by looking at it. <laughs> Does your plan cover Part B of your Medicaid now? Yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm, a, I'm on a do not call list, but it hasn't stopped. <laughs> That's great. Okay. So LaHaye was telling us that you know, in the Millennial Kingdom, we'll go back to animal sacrifice and that the current Lord's Supper commemorates that. Uh, you know, why on earth would you go back to the types and shadows? Um, those were fulfilled by Christ. Those things pointed to Christ. So why do this giant U-turn and go back to the types and shadows? So that's the dispensational millennium, a return to Israel. Jesus is sitting on David's throne. Jesus is ruling and reigning from Jerusalem. If you're historic premillennial, you don't have the, the Israeli stuff. What you have is Jesus ruling over the earth, and things are renewed partially because you have people in resurrected bodies on the earth living in the midst of people who made it into the millennial kingdom in natural bodies. Now, how that works is beyond me, and I don't think there's any possible way to get people into a millennial kingdom after Christ comes back, because Christ, they're either judged, they're either elect or reprobate, they're weed or mm-hmm. terror sheep, or blood, they're, you're, you're in or you're out. There's no way to have people in natural bodies on the earth. And again, the problem with any form of, of premillennialism that sees this golden age on the earth, the problem with any form of that is at the end, there's a giant apostasy. Mm-hmm. Everybody revolts against Christ. So are we to believe that during the thousand years when Jesus rules and reigns over the earth, that at the end of it, all the nations revolt against him, and there's what amounts to a second fall. It just makes no sense whatsoever. Now, if you're post-millennial, the argument is that the gospel progresses to the ends of the earth, and as it does so, the gospel produces secular transformation so that it's possible to argue, as B.B. Warfield did, uh, that Christ returns to a saved earth. Mm-hmm. The gospel progress is so great that it converts all the world to Christianity. I don't see that. I see the gospel going into the ends of the earth. I see it having wonderful, restraining, transformative uh, powers, but I don't see the nations becoming Christianized. Hmm. And so you'd had this young Dutch Reformed scholar hanging with the, the old Lion of Princeton, that young scholar named was Gerhardus Voss, and Voss would say to Dr. Warfield, Christ is coming to save the earth, not returning to a saved earth. And, and that's the debate between post-mill and all-mill. Both post-millennialism and all-millennialism have the same basic structure, that the millennium occurs before Christ comes back. The post-mill folk want to see that tied to the progress of culture, uh, the, the con- mass conversion of the nations. The all folk will tie it to the advance of the kingdom of God, but not to secular progress. So, I, I, that's a that's a, a huge debate, and I think it's settled by the nature of the kingdom. I think the kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. It, it's not going to uh, convert all the nations to Christ, although there will be Christians in every nation. The gospel will go to the ends of the earth. So, I'm very optimistic about the, the city of God and very pessimistic about the city of man. Okay. Well, th- there you go. He settled the eschatological debate, guys, on, on the millennium. Let's go home. Yeah, let's, let's go, go home. home. <laughs> Stick a fork in it. <laughs> Weren't that easy. It was that easy, guys. <laughs> that easy. Yeah. Um, so on the the so an, another objection here uh, would be the millennium looking um, uh, as literal or or figurative. Uh, what what would be your scriptural argumentation for the millennium being? Uh, not literal. Well, you have language in the prophets of, gosh, if a person dies in 120 years, people are going to think, wow, 
you know, what do they do? Uh, you'll have lions lying down with lambs. You'll have children playing with cobras. And you'll have, you know, so you, you do have language in the prophets of a sort of transformation of life on earth. In Revelation chapter 20, which is the only passage that mentions the thousand years, it begins characteristically a new vision revelation. Um, I think we have to, to get out of the habit of reading the book of Revelation chronologically and see it as a, a repeating series of visions. Um, my buddy Dennis Johnson will very helpfully say in his commentary on Revelation, the triumph of the Lamb, um, Dr. Johnson will make the case that um, you need to view those visions in the book of Revelation like you know, you're watching a football game with different camera angles. So you have a camera set up to watch the line of scrimmage, you have another camera set up to view the field from the end zone, you have isolated cameras looking at each of the, the positional players and so on. Mm-hmm. So that while the while the game's going on, you see you know see a different angle at different places. So the book of Revelation is like that. And the seventh vision, beginning in chapter twenty, starts a whole new vision. So it's not talking about something that happens after chapter nineteen when Christ comes back. It's talking about the same period of time, although it does focus on the end. So that's really the only passage in the Bible that, that even speaks of a millennium or a thousand years. And then the question is you start looking at it. People die during this period of time. Some are martyred and come up to the throne. And so, you know, I take um, the throne scene in, the, in Revelation 20 to be talking about heaven. And if not, that's the only place in the book where the thrones are, you know, uh, on earth, because elsewhere in the Revelation are in heaven. And so the scene is these people are coming out of the Great Tribulation, which is a period of time between Christ's first coming and his second. They're coming out of the Great Tribulation. Some have been martyred for their faith, which has been discussed in Revelation 12 and 13 and 17, so it's kind of recapitulating or a different camera angle again. And so this is a period not of peace and and harmony, but a period of warfare, a period of people laying down their lives and being killed and persecuted by the beast and then triumphing when they take their place in the thrones in heaven, uh, ruling and reigning with Christ. So the book of Revelation has kind of a, a, a double layer. It has the Roman Empire and the persecution by Nero of the saints in the foreground, in the background is the heavenly scene where um, things are being done according to the will of God, and those two things will coalesce at the end when the second time comes. All that is to say, the language of um, peace and progress and the prophets is given in a prophetic idiom, because nobody before the, the death and resurrection and ascension of Christ could understand if the prophets were to talk about a resurrected body that's foreign to them because they have no analog, they have no and they have no image for it until Christ does it. Mm-hmm. So the prophets speak in terms of long life, in terms of a of a an undoing of the curse in ways that the people of Israel at that time would understand and which were an outgrowth of things earlier in the Old Testament. Um, once Christ comes and Jesus and his apostles and not necessarily reinterpret, but certainly expand on those prophecies. And then we can see that the closing chapter of Isaiah, the language in Zechariah and others, is referring to a spiritual kingdom that will consummate in a new heaven and a new earth. So it's new creation language. It's not partially redemption language. Suppose you get to play with a lion in the millennial kingdom. What happens to that lion? You know, mighty grass. So an herbivore becomes a herbivore, which, you know, I don't think makes any sense at all. Um, 
but what's going to happen to it? Is it going to live, or is it going to? So we still have death in the millennium if you're if you're you know, seeing this as this great transformation. When Christ's second coming ends death, I, I don't see there's any way to have death after the Lord's return. So, you know, to to make a millennium tied to Old Testament types and shadows, whether they be temple sacrifices, priesthood, or long life without eternal life, without a resurrected body, the transformation of the animal kingdom into a peaceful kingdom, all of that stuff, it makes perfect sense that the prophets are talking about a new heaven and new earth. It makes much, much less sense if it's kind of a halfway period of transformation on the earth. So uh, you, you kind of gave it, um, at least I'm assuming, because I think you kind of mentioned it there in passing, but would you consider yourself a, uh, a preterist looking at the book of Revelation? Um, I, I get a kick out of that because dispensationalists will um, call me a preterist and preterists call me a futurist. Um, okay. Um, preterism is a, is a tough word because it's now taken on a dual meaning. There are those who believe the events of, of the book of Revelation are prior to 70. I don't think so. I think John writes post-70. I think John's the only biblical writer that writes after the fall of Jerusalem. So I'm, I'm pretty much an early dating guy in all of that. I think full preterism is a heresy to argue that there isn't there is no second coming and a bodily resurrection that the conversion of people is just repopulate just populating heaven for all eternity i think you know paul condemns it as heresy i know the, the the full preterists will work their way you know into a into a dither trying to get around that mm-hmm. but there is a there is a, a second coming christ returns bodily as you saw him go so shall you see him come there is a general resurrection um, Paul talks about a resurrection body as being, you know, uh, physical, uh, all that stuff. So, um, I tend to, I think the better category is the, the term that's used, idealism. I'm not happy with that, but I, I think uh, all of the New Testament, apart from the Gospel of John, the Epistles of John, the Book of Revelation, pre seventy, and so I think part, I think all the discourse is talking about the events of eighty seventy. But maybe there's a hint of the second coming in there, and I think uh, I don't really fit in either category. Okay. All right. All righty. And uh, an- another one that I have been wanting to ask for a while is the thousand years. The thousand years end with a great apostasy and the re- the the rebellion of nations led by Gog and Magog. Um, who or what is Gog and Magog? <laughs> Yeah, Gog and Magog. If you trace them back to Ezekiel thirty, what thirty six, uh, thirty seven, thirty nine. Yeah, I need another cup of coffee to remember the exact passage. Um, <laughs> the idea there it would be a, a Gog and Magog would have been a reference to leaders from the north. Now, if you're living in Israel in the days of Ezekiel. 8th century BC, or maybe a tad earlier. The Scythians from the north were constantly raiding the northern parts of Israel. They would sneak through the Assyrian Empire, and you'd have a band of armed horsemen show up, um, pillage your stuff, take your cattle, and haul off some of your kids to slavery. You know, you've got so they take on this notion of invaders from the north. Um, Hal Lindsay and others have tried to say this is Russia. Uh, Rosh, Meshach, Tubal, and they'll go so far as to identify places. You know, there, there are some similarities because 
you know, those places are to the north of Israel. But um, Gog and Magog are a reference to Gentile powers that torment God's people. Nothing more than that. So when you have um, the, the author of Revelation speak of them, he's talking about Gentile powers are going to be overcome by the kingdom of God. Now, I, I can say that with a bit of certainty because I think there's a parallel passage in the New Testament to Revelation chapter 20 that's often overlooked, and that's Second Thessalonians chapter 2, where Paul is talking about the fact that somebody in the Thessalonian church was trying to be helpful uh, but screw things up really badly by telling people that the day of the Lord's already come. And so Paul's saying, wait, whoa, 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 whoa. No, the day of the Lord hasn't already come. And we know that because the man of sin has not appeared. And the man of sin is being currently restrained by a restrainer. So what's the restrainer? Well, they look at Revelation chapter 20, we have Satan being bound to the abyss. Well, are we really to believe that God took a chain and tied it around Satan's foot and threw him in a physical cell and you know, put a key and locked the door? You know, these are all images of God restraining or binding these powers that oppose the gospel. At some point, Paul says, restraint is lifted. The man of sin appears to be cut down by Christ at his second coming. That's very, very, very much like Revelation chapter 20, where Satan is bound. Uh, he, John is, gives us very specific language there, what that means. It doesn't mean the devil's taken out of the way, which, by the way, is the most common objection I get to my position. Well, how could the devil be bound when there's so much satanic activity in the world? But well, we don't mean he's taken out of the way. What we mean by being bound is he's thwarted. He can't deceive the nations like he could do beforehand. He's, he's, he's limited because of the cross, because mm -hmm. of Christ's triumph over his, his kingdom. So during that time, uh, Revelation chapter 20, uh, the devil is bound. He's bound with the preaching of the gospel. At the end of that time, he's released. And then you have the beast and the false prophet and the dragon thrown in the lake of fire. So Second Thessalonians 2 and Revelation chapter 20 are really parallel passages talking about the same thing. Christ does something to restrain evil. At the end of the age, before he returns, evil is let loose. Uh, the restraints lifted, Satan's unbound, and we have uh, the worst conditions Christ's people have ever seen, and we won't be having prophecy seminars asking ourselves, do you think this is it? Hmm. Uh, it'll be the end, to the end of time, and it'll be miserable, and unless Christ comes back, there's no hope, and he does. So there is a sense in which Satan is bound right now. We think, yes. it's, we think it's bad yes. now, it's going to get much worse. Yes, yes. and that, that's Paul's language in, in Colossians 1 and 2, you know, made triumph over him, mm -hmm. you know, and Jesus' language to the disciples in Luke's gospel, you know, they come back and they saw, you know, Master, we saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven, well, got to bind the strong man, and you have right. those kinds of images that the gospel does something to prevent Satan from doing what he'd done before, and so we know what he was able to do before from the fact that in Zechariah chapter 3, you know, he tattles on the high priest Joshua, you know, right. and in Job, in Job, the Lord calls the devil's attention to Job, you know, and Job says he follows you only because you give him all this good stuff, take the good stuff away and see what he does. And so we have images of Satan having access to accused before, mm -hmm. and that stops by the Christ's victory over him. Sure. So you get, you get Revelation 12 with the dragon, you know, there's war in heaven, the dragon was thrown out. Mm -hmm. So uh, that image is pretty clear that, that the, the work of Christ does something 
to bring serious damage and restraint to yeah. Satan's work. Mm-hmm. And I think we see that manifested, don't we, in the way that the gospel has gone out into all of the, yes. all of the nations. You know, absolutely. Whereas it was absolutely. just Israel first, who were God's people. Um, yeah. And now we have, you know, the gospel literally going out to every tribe and tongue throughout the world. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, last question. Definitely one that I didn't think about until I was this discussion was rolling out. Uh, what is your position on the 144,000 in the book of Re- Revelation? Um, I used to have a Jewish friend say, well, it can't be Israel because you're never going to find 140,000 Jewish virgins. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, you take that passage literally, and you've got, you know, all kinds of problems. Um, and I don't mean to be crude, but there, there, there's, a, there's a consequence to literal interpretation that raises objections like that. Hmm. Um, if you know your Old Testament again, the book of Revelation is God's divinely given commentary on the Old Testament. So, 12. Hmm, where would I find 12 in the Old Testament? Ah, the 12 tribes of Israel. So, it's not an accident that there are how many disciples? There are 12. When Judas does his thing, he's replaced, you know, by a person we've never, we never hear again from. But the idea is that all those numbers that appear in the book of Revelation come from the Old Testament. So, how are they used in the Old Testament? Then, as a first-century Greek speaker, like John, who was obviously fluent Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, the way you emphasize that, you add a bunch of zeros to it. So 12 tribes times 12 disciples is 144. If it's a mass number of people, stick a bunch of zeros on the end. For emphasis, this is a, this is a pre-mathematical, pre-critical, pre-scientific age, so you, you throw a bunch of zeros on it to show us how great it is. Is that number intended to be a literal 144,000 virgins? And the answer is no. A virgin is someone who's pure. These are people who are wearing white robes who've been purified by the shed blood of Christ. Uh, this is a number of a symbolic of a vast number of people, so vast they cannot be counted. And so you know, when we as Reformed Christians preach and teach the doctrine of election, and people say, well, how can you say God only saves a few people? I don't know if a single Reformed theologian's ever said a few people. It's it's a huge number, so vast they can't be counted. Well, what about 144,000? Well, that's just a, a glimpse of how huge this number is. Mm, sure. So it's, it's a, it grows right out of the Old Testament. So whenever you read the book of Revelation, you get locusts. You know, well, the ancient world knew the destruction of a locust plague. Um, John is not telling us that, gee, modern bell UH-1B Huey helicopters look like locusts, so John's trying to talk about some future technology that looks like a locust. Right. That's just ridiculous. Um, no, locusts were incredibly destructive. The worst thing that could happen to you was the plague of locusts because it ate everything and you died. Hmm. Um, yeah. Simple as that. So numbers, creatures, images in the book of Revelation all come out of the Old Testament, and I am thoroughly convinced that as a Gentile 2,000 years removed from the Old Testament, world and life of the, of the New Testament, transition the uh, from old to new, from the thought world of the apostles, in other words. I have a difficult time understanding the book of Revelation because I don't have the cultural uh, Old Testament background. But I'm convinced that when that letter was read to first century congregations that had Jews and Gentiles in them, the Jews knew exactly what John meant, because all of these things come mm-hmm. out of the Old Testament. Sure, mm-hmm. yeah. So the way to make sense of the book of Revelation is, what, how is this used in the Old Testament? How is it fulfilled by Christ? 
And then the two levels again, how did this refer to the original audience being persecuted by Nero or the, the subsequent Roman emperors? And then how does this show the heavenly scene, which is simultaneous to the earthly scene, but in the two different realms? So mm-hmm. uh, 144,000 is a number to tell us a whole bunch and nothing more. Right. Gotcha. Awesome. Wow. That's a lot to think about. Thank yeah. you. Thank you so much. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, I highly recommend you guys Greg Beal's commentary on Revelation. Beal's one of those. There's a thousand sermons on every page in that commentary. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. What was it again? Greg Greg Beale. Beal's commentary in the Book of Revelation, okay. the uh, New International Critical Commentary, New Testament. Just absolutely a great piece of work. And you know what Beal and Dennis Johnson and, and even William Hendrickson have done is they've taken the Book of Revelation and made it a book about Christ, not a book about a bunch of weird stuff. Mm. Yeah. Greg Beal, B-E-A-L-E, right? E, right, yep, great, great work. And Dennis Johnson's Triumph of the Lamb is enough. That's you know, that's just must-reading, because Dennis does a great job of... Beal's complicated, it's a, it's a technical commentary, presupposes a bit of Greek. Johnson's is a is an exposition that's scholarly, and the two of them together will, you know... The Book of Revelation is really God's commentary on all the open-ended themes in redemptive history. Sure. And you, you, you know, like I said, it, it's just the most Christ-centered book in the Bible, and it's uh, made intelligible by these guys, so that it isn't some weird book that only people who are prophecy pundits and experts in esoteric can read. Right. It's right. a book about Jesus. It's a book about Jesus protecting yeah. his people. Exactly. One of the best descriptions I heard, brief summaries of Revelation that I that I heard once was that. Uh, Revelation gives us the picture of the reality that is behind the reality that we see. In other mm, words, it's the good. real, Absolutely. it's the real, real reality. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. yeah. So uh, another book to get is a uh, a case for all millennialism. So just throw that one. <laughs> <out> there. <laughs> there you go. Thanks. Well, I, I want to make sure you guys are, are reading it correctly because have you gotten the second blessing yet? <laughs> you should you should get it at the end of the third chapter. If you don't, you've not read it correctly. Okay. <laughs> I felt it falling. I felt it falling during the podcast. So, hey. We always want to go back to the gospel, because whatever our views are in eschatology, it's the gospel that saves. And so we always ask our guests if they would take a, a moment to share the gospel with our listeners. So if you would do that, sure. Dr. Riddlebarger, we'd appreciate it. Sure. Um, it's clear that anyone who examines their life, even for a moment, realizes that they are uh, far away from being in conformity to God's commandments. The, the law of God shows us how sinful we are, and we've not... Uh, kept God first and foremost in our lives. We've not worshipped Him the way He's commanded. Uh, we've invented false gods. We haven't kept the Lord's Day. We've you know, cheated on our wives and family in our hearts. We've stolen our neighbor's property in our hearts. We may have done it physically or, or in person. Uh, if we haven't done it with our hands, we've certainly done it in our minds and hearts. So when you look at your life, not in comparison to your neighbor, um, but in comparison to the law of God, which is the standard by which you're going to be judged, it's pretty clear that not one of us is a law keeper. Mm-hmm. So God had to send a Savior to keep those commandments for us and in our place, and then to die for all those sins that we've committed, and the sin is any time we violated the law of God. So the law shows us our sin. The law shows us what God's uh, requirements are for us. He's not going to grade the passing exam on a curve. You know, he demands perfect obedience to his law and thought, word, and deed. Uh, we can't do it. We're guilty before him. We stand condemned before him. But God sent to us a Savior who kept the law perfectly and who then died for all the times that we have failed to keep the law. So 
The gospel is the declaration that that's true, the response to the gospel, the only possible response to the gospel is to trust the Savior whom God has sent, and that's the Lord Jesus who came to earth to die for our sins, who got raised for our justification, and who asked us to trust Him uh, with our lives for all eternity by acknowledging the fact that we're sinful, to believe His promise, and to then become His disciple. Hmm. Amen. Amen, amen, amen. All right, so everybody go pick up a copy of A Case for All Millennialism by Dr. Kim Riddlebogger. You can pick it up here at Bridge Ministries if you are in the community or on Amazon.com. And what can they do, Steve, on Amazon? Amazon.com. Go to uh, smile.amazon.com. And uh, if you look up uh, Bridge Ministries of Laredo as your preferred Nonprofit beneficiary, then any purchases that you make uh, will benefit us. A small percentage of your purchase goes to us, so we appreciate. We always appreciate that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, for our audience, where can they find you, Dr. Kim? Uh, the Riddle Blog. I blog uh, pretty regularly. Okay. Um, so just look up Riddle Blog. I'm on Squarespace, and uh, I have my sermons and number of lectures. I'm currently lecturing a series on apologetics. Nice. And anything else of interest in all the book reviews and so on, so you can follow me there. By the way, I have to tell you, you know, I was raised in a Christian bookstore. So I, when oh, you guys wow. told me just now that you were a, a, ran a bookstore, I, you made my heart glad. I grew up in a Christian <laughs> bookstore at Knott's Berry Farm here in Orange County. Really? Oh, wow. Um, wow. Which is one of the oldest amusement parks in the United States. So awesome. uh, I know how, uh, I know how, uh, difficult and challenging that can be and how rewarding it can be so yes. yeah I think, I think this is the only reform uh, bookstore in texas <laughs> yeah. okay can we okay. say that can we make that claim i, 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 don't I know. think so I, I think so i don't know well, good for you guys yes. it's, it's, you know, <laughs> amazon's convenient but there's nothing like a bookstore I and mean, then the, the brick and mortar store is still Amen. still is a better place yeah 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 so good, good on you keep going well thank you so much we really appreciate yep. it and I, yeah. I would just uh, pass along too to our listeners. It, there's another book in this kind of uh, theme, um, "A Man of uh, the Man of Sin," right? That you yep. wrote uh, a few years ago. And uh, yeah, that's my that's my spiritual autobiography. <laughs> <laughs> that's no, right. It's, it's that's about the I'd highly recommend that one as well. That uh, <laughs> if you want that uh, fleshed out a little bit more. Yeah, yeah. All right, Doctor. Uh, all right, Dr. Kim Riddlebogger, we're going to go ahead and get going. Man, it was it was so fun Good. to have you on. Yeah, we got to have you, you back. For, thank you Absolutely. for coming on. It was. It was a great time. Bridge is a nonprofit reformed Christian bookstore, teaching ministry, and coffee shop. We are dedicated to discipling and equipping Christians for the work of ministry and the building up of the body of Christ. We do this by providing affordable new and used Bibles and gospel-centered Christian books and study resources in English and Spanish. Please prayerfully consider supporting Bridge Ministries through a one-time or monthly gift as this allows us to continue our local and international outreach through our Bible studies, lectures, and Bridge Radio. You can give and find more information about us by visiting our website at bridgemenlaredo.org. Thank you for tuning in, and as always, what is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, but belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. 